Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the Iran nuclear negotiations, why the Humpty Dumpty JCPOA should not be renewed. Please welcome our host, James Phillips, Senior Research Fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Well, thank you, Maeve. Uh, we're here today to discuss uh, the Iran nuclear negotiations. And as all of you know, uh, the Vienna talks on Iran's nuclear program resumed on Monday. The Biden administration sees the negotiations as a means of reviving the 2015 Iran nuclear deal that the Trump administration withdrew from in 2018. Although the Biden administration acknowledges some of the weaknesses of the Obama-era deal, known uh, formally as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, uh, it hopes to rectify some of those flaws uh, of the deal in a, a follow-on agreement, uh, but that's something that Iran has rejected out of hand. And Iran looks at the Vienna talks in a totally different way from the U.S., and that's no surprise there. Uh, Tehran sees the primary issue is how the U.S. must lift sanctions to return to the good graces of Iran and be allowed to rejoin the JCPOA. Iran's chief negotiator, Ali Bagheri, has made it clear that he is only there to negotiate the lifting of U.S. sanctions. Uh, this, the Iranians claim that they're serious about negotiating in good faith, and they cite the size of their delegation, which has 40 members. But it turns out that most of these Iranian officials deal with sanctions issues, and there are few, if any, nuclear experts. This focus on sanctions makes sense to Iran, since the JCPOA actually did a much better job of dismantling U.S. sanctions on Iran than it did in dismantling Iran's nuclear program. And that's why Iran has been able to ramp up its nuclear activity so quickly in recent months. In fact, Iran was allowed to keep many illicit nuclear facilities that it covertly built before they were discovered. These facilities were legitimized by the JCPOA, despite the fact that Iran's initial failure to declare the nature of those facilities violated Iran's nonproliferation commitments under its Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty Safeguards Agreement. Lately, Iran has exceeded the limits of the JCPOA and now enriches uranium up to 60% purity a very short step from weapons-grade levels of 90% purity. Now there are unconfirmed reports assessing that Iran soon could begin 90% enrichment. Uh, Iran also spends uh, advanced centrifuges once restricted by the JCPOA and its uranium stockpile now far exceeds the accord's limits. Before going to Vienna, Iran's negotiating demands included the full lifting of all nuclear and non-nuclear sanctions imposed during the Trump administration, a guarantee that the U.S. won't again quit an agreement, and that's something that no president could give, 
a compensation for economic damage caused by U.S. sanctions since 2018, and a verification period which would allow Tehran to ensure that it is receiving what it considers to be the full economic benefits of the deal before it reverses its violations of the JCPOA. To make matters even worse, Iran has curbed the access of UN nuclear inspectors, which has prevented them from fully monitoring Iran's nuclear program. Last week, the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, traveled to Iran for talks, but failed to make any progress on restoring access for his inspectors. Today, we're fortunate to have two recognized experts to discuss the Iran nuclear issue. Dr. Peter Brooks is a Heritage Foundation Senior Fellow for Weapons of Mass Destruction and Counterproliferation. Prior to working at Heritage, he served as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense. He worked as a congressional staffer at the CIA, at the State Department, and initially as a Naval officer. He's also a graduate of Georgetown, Johns Hopkins, the Naval War College, and the Defense Language Institute, at the, as well as the U.S. Naval Academy. Our first uh, speaker will be Fred Flights. He served for 25 years in national security posts with the CIA, the DIA, the State Department, and the House Intelligence Committee staff. In 2018, he served as the National Security Council Chief of Staff, and Fred is currently the president of the Center for Security Policy and a Newsmax TV contributor. He's written extensively about the Iran nuclear program, including a 2016 book on the JCPOA. So let's kick things off uh, with Fred. I'd like to ask you, uh, Fred, if you could put the current talks in Vienna in context and assess uh, what is likely to come out of them. Uh, thank you, Jim. It's so great to be here at the Heritage Foundation. The two of you are leading experts on Iran, and I just feel honored to be on a panel with both of you. I think these talks in Vienna are a tipping point for American and European policy on Iran. We know that Joe Biden has been obsessed with getting back into this deeply flawed Obama-era agreement, and the Europeans are with him. But the Iranians have behaved so badly this year. I mean, they've actually physically harassed female IAEA inspectors. They're denying the IAEA access to uranium mines, to facilities making advanced centrifuge parts. They're enriching uranium to 60%, uranium to 35 and the Israelis believe there's intelligence that Iran is prepared to soon start enriching to weapons grade. Jim, this behavior has been so bad that it looks like these talks are going to close early this week. And I think that Biden, as desperate as he is to revive this Obama-era nuclear deal, and as angry as he is that Trump pulled out of it, I think Biden is prepared to throw in the towel and to move to tough sanctions. That is, to resume President Trump's approach of maximum pressure. And it just kills the Democrats, I think, right now to admit that Donald Trump was right on how to deal with Iran. Diplomacy is not going to work. This is not a nation that wants a diplomatic process to end the nuclear program. And, and I'd, I'd add one final comment. Let's remember that just before these talks began on Monday, 
the spokesman for the Iranian army reiterated Iran's determination to annihilate the state of Israel. That's how Iran set up these talks. This is not a nation that's prepared to negotiate. It's time for tough sanctions. We need to get the world to unite with us to do that against Iran. Thanks, Fred. Uh, Peter, how do you see the Vienna talks going? Uh, can they succeed in blocking Iran's nuclear ambitions? Yeah. Uh, Fred gave a great summary. Um, it's a pleasure to be working with you, Jim, and, and Fred on this on this panel. Um, I, I think they're going as expected, and I'm actually, I hate to say it, I'm, I'm kind of happy that they may end early, because I was worried that the Biden administration might collapse to the Iranian team. Uh, that they might give in to uh, Iran's nuclear brinksmanship, uh, especially uh, con some, c considering some of the things we've heard recently, the idea that they might enrich to 90 percent uh, enrichment uh, with on, um, uranium. Uh, news recently that the breakout time, the time it takes them to gather enough material for one bomb uh, is down to maybe a month. Uh, maybe for two or three bombs, it might take five months. I mean, this is really, really scary, really scary stuff. So I, they're kind of going as I expected. I expected the Iranian team to come in with a very hard line stance based on the new, the new president of the country uh, making outrageous demands. Um, and I think they were hoping that the Biden administration in uh, hopes of a, a foreign policy victory by year's end uh, would, uh, would give in, uh, would crumble. Uh, so in a certain way, although I would like to see them succeed with a, a you know, tougher agreement, I want our side to succeed with a tougher agreement and put the Iranian nuclear program in the past. Um, I, if, I'm glad it appears perhaps if these talks are going to end early, um, that we are that they will not collapse uh, in terms of the U.S. position, uh, which should be which should be extremely tough and maybe have to be put off to the next year and, and give a signal to the Iranians that we're not going to give in on these issues that we're so concerned about, such as uh, ballistic missiles and uranium enrichment and the lack of transparency and the possible military dimensions of their, of their program, um, as well as the inspection regime, which has always been troubling to me. We need any time, anywhere inspections. The idea that we cannot inspect Iranian military bases or IRGC bases is beyond me. I mean, we know the IRGC is you know in, in charge of this program, um, so there's there's so many problems, so many flaws. The sunset provisions that we've talked about, uh, that if we, I, I hope we send a very strong signal to the Iranians uh, that we are not going to give in, and and tougher days could be ahead for them, uh, for this new regime, which I don't think this new regime in Iran wants. Um, so I think that's where they are. I, I, it's going to be very very difficult, considering as Fred pointed out, all the things that Iran has done. Uh, with their enrichment program. Uh, you know, of course, I'm very concerned about their ballistic missile program. I think it's going to be a very, very difficult set of negotiations. And we're going to have to work very closely with our allies and partners uh, to put Iran in its place on this program, which is uh, illegal under the, under the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. So uh, I think it's going to be very, very tough. And I, I was worried that they may try to close this up by year's end. I mean, everybody wants to go home for the, for the holidays, whatever holidays they are the new year or, or the uh, Christmas and other things that come at the end of the year. So I'm, I'm kind of happy uh, at this point uh, that uh, it looks like we were going to say, hey, your demands are just too much. And we'll, you know, think about them and we'll come back and talk about them again after this, uh, what, what, the seventh round, I think this is. 
Um, so that's that's kind of where I'm standing at the moment. Uh, we'll see what we see what we hear about in the in the coming hours and days about uh, where where the negotiations stand. Thanks, Peter. And as you point out, this new Iranian uh, president, uh, Raisi, is an ultra hardliner. He has been critical of the previous Iranian president, uh, Hassan Rouhani, for negotiating the, the agreement to begin with. And I'd just l like to ask, uh, Fred, how has this new regime accelerated uh, Iran's nuclear program? How does Iran's nuclear program compare to where it was back in July? July 2015, when the JCPOA was initially negotiated, and how far has Iran advanced uh, its nuclear weapons program since uh, President Biden assumed office in January? Well, many people think that Iran's nuclear program worsened under President Raisi. I think there's some truth to that, but Supreme Leader Khamenei calls the shots in Iran, and I would note that most of the really serious violations of Iran's NPT commitments began before Raisi uh, won the June election. So I, I'm, I don't think we can attribute all this to him. Uh, but it's interesting what we're seeing right now. When uh, Barack Obama became president in, in 2009, Iran did not have enough enriched uranium to make even one nuclear weapon. But in mid-2015, it had enough to make 10. Now we have a situation where Iran probably has enough enriched uranium to make three nuclear weapons, and it is enriching to 60% uh, U-235, which is close to weapons grade, and may start enriching to weapons grade. These are developments we've never seen before. This is a huge move towards making a nuclear weapon just since Joe Biden entered office. But we're seeing the same pattern, just like during the Obama administration. The Iranians engage in outrageously reckless and dangerous behavior, knowing if they behave badly enough, they will be bought off. And that's what we're seeing. That's what we saw with JCPOA. And we're seeing that now. We know in recent months that Biden officials, uh, recent weeks, Biden officials have actually been talking about giving Iran sanctions relief in, ex in response to the surge in its nuclear program. And if they'll freeze in exchange for them freezing some of it. This is giving in a blackmail, Jim. We've seen this before. I might add North Korea has done this for years, too. And I think that's Iran's game, to ramp up their program as fast as they can, as far as they can, knowing in the end we're going to blink and we're going to pay them off. And, Peter, uh, we've heard about the status of Iran's nuclear program from Fred, but what is the status of Iran's ballistic missile program and why is it so important uh, in terms of their nuclear weapons program? Well, you know, it, the, the missile program does not get enough attention, in my view. And, of course, the nuclear program is very, very important. I mean, I wish the people would put these put these two together. I mean, many people don't realize, you know, we hear a lot about you know, Russian missile programs, the Chinese missile programs. We've had the hypersonics. Uh, in fact, I've been working on a paper on Chinese hypersonics recently. Uh, but, you know, this is the largest and most diverse missile program in, in the Middle East. And I, I, I believe it was General McKenzie of CENTCOM the other day gave a number of about 3,000 missiles. Uh, now, that probably includes, includes not only ballistic missiles, but it also includes and probably cruise missiles. I don't know if he's including UAVs in there, but they have a, you know, they have a missile-like quality, you know, unmanned aerial vehicles. And Iranians have used this to tremendous uh, success. 
Um, you know, they once again, they, they have the capability. They range all of the of the Middle East with a, a, some missiles uh, such as the Shahab 3, the Ahmad and Sajil that have a 2000 kilometer uh, range. So that not only covers all of the Middle East, but, you know, covers parts of Russia and parts of parts of South Asia. Um, and this is and they've, they've decided that this is going to be an emphasis of of theirs um, because it is um, it's it's very capable. They don't have an air force. Um, it allows them to project power. It gives international prestige. And also another thing, and the reason we're so worried about it is it's a great platform for carrying uh, a nuclear weapon. And as we know, based on the purloined or the, the, the stolen uh, or exfiltrated, however you want to put it, materials that the Israelis got out of uh, Tehran, uh, that they were working on a nuclear weapon for a missile. Um, they, they, there were drawings of a, of a weapon inside the nose cone of a Shahab three, um, they under the Ahmad program. Um, it may have stopped in 2003, but I don't know. And of course we know that they're crafting uranium metal now, uh, which would be required for a, for a nuclear weapon. Um, so there is a tremendous uh, concern about the delivery vehicle. Now I, I would say that uh, you know, a, a nuclear weapon inside the nose cone of a, of a rocket or a missile um, needs to be able to withstand, you know, temperatures and pressures and vibrations of flight and then go explode at the end of that. So it is very, very complicated. But uh, there is tremendous concerns that that's what Iran is going to. So you have a nuclear program, but yet they're, they're talking about um, there's very likely going to um, put it on the in the nose cone of of, of a regional missile, and they're also looking at uh, ICBMs. And I think that their space program is probably a cover for a long-range intercontinental ballistic missile capability, um, because the, the technology that's used in an ICBM and a space launch vehicle are essentially essentially the same. And if you can put something into space like that, you, uh, such as a satellite of a significant weight, um, you can essentially put a um, a nuclear weapon any place on the Earth's uh, surface, uh, which would include that the, the U.S. homeland would be would be at risk. So there, there's a little bit further down the road, uh, but um, Iran has you know made tremendous gains on this. It's great for power projection and intimidates uh, neighbors. It's an, it gives them an asymmetrical advantage. Uh, it provides defense, deterrence, uh, uh, and it's uh, something that we need to be concerned about when we've seen them used to to effect. Right, we've seen these missiles and. Uh, cruise missiles used um, against U.S. forces, against Saudi, against Saudi Arabia, against other groups in Iraq, um, and Iran is continue and will continue to emphasize the lethality, uh, the precision capabilities, and also the uh, propulsion uh, capabilities of uh, of their missile and uh, cruise missile forces. Thanks, Peter, uh, and Fred. Uh, here's a one for you. Uh, and I, I would ask members of the audience, if you have questions, submit them under the question button or whatever the little doodad is. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, Fred, uh, you were you had a, a, a very important position in, in the National Security Council uh, d during the uh, Trump administration. And I'd, I'd like to draw out from you uh, uh, if you could talk a little about uh, President Trump's May 2018 decision to withdraw from the JCPOA. Uh, why did he wait more than a year into his presidency to do that? 
You know, that's a great question because President Trump's critics have accused him of rushing to get out of the deal. And this wasn't done with due consideration. But in fact, uh, President Trump gave defenders of the deal and uh, in the United States and in Europe opportunities to come up with a way to fix it, and they failed. And I think that's very important to recognize that this was a deliberative process and it was a long process. That's the first point. The second point is, and, and I think the president would recognize this, is that he brought in a number of advisors, such as Rex Tillerson and H.R. McMaster and, and uh, 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 General Mattis, who did not support his policy on Iran to withdraw from the JCPOA. And there were these long meetings with the president and in the National Security Council when the president had one position and his advisors were fighting for something else. Now, I don't understand how you could take a cabinet position with an American president if you oppose what he stands for and plan to come in and fight with him. And that's what Tillerson and McMaster and Mattis did. And it uh, and my friend Sebastian Gorka can tell stories about this because he's someone who was in the government and fought very hard to implement the policies that President Trump wanted to implement. He thought this was the worst deal ever. We know he campaigned on this as a candidate. But when he came into office, he did take time to evaluate what had to be done. Um, and I think that was done. But he had a fight with his advisors who didn't want to implement his policies. They kept talking him out what he wanted to do. And eventually he got tired of it when there was no uh, solution forthcoming to, to, to fix the agreement. I might add, this agreement is not fixable. Don't, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And uh, eventually uh, some of these advisors left. He brought in John Bolton and Mike Pompeo. And voila, uh, the president made an historic decision to withdraw uh, from this fatally flawed agreement. And uh, how would you answer critics who say that uh, Trump's uh, maximum pressure sanctions policy uh, was a failure after the U.S. withdrew? Well, there were no easy answers to Iran's nuclear program. Iran was cheating on the JCPOA. We know this from the Iran nuclear archive, which Peter mentioned earlier. We know right now that there are covert nuclear sites where the uranium traces have been found which basically is telltale signs of activities in violation of the JCPOA, covert nuclear weapons work. So what's the alternative? Well, President Trump pulled out. He put maximum pressure, very strong sanctions on Iran to try to deny it access, not just to, uh, not just to economic resources, but to make it harder for it to import technology that it would need to advance its nuclear program. Was it perfect? No. But the alternative, was to go to war with Iran. And President Trump is an American first guy, I am too, and uh, he wanted to keep America out of unnecessary wars, not to start new wars. You may remember, Jim, that th there was a drone that was shot down, an American drone in mid-2019. And we were about to go to war with Iran over that. And at the last minute, President Trump reversed the decision of his advisors and said, you know, I'm not gonna kill 100 to 200 Iranians for shooting down an unmanned drone. I'm not going to start an unnecessary war with Iran. So you can say maximum pressure didn't completely succeed, but then one has to argue, well, what would the alternative be? And uh, I think some of the, the neocons and people who have gotten into a lot of these wars think that we should have attacked Iran. I don't think that would have worked because so much of the program is underground. I think the solution is to isolate Iran. 
implement very strong sanctions. And I believe that President Trump put the most effective policy possible to counter this threat. And Peter, uh, uh, Fred mentioned uh, Iran's drone threat. And what about uh, drones and cruise missiles? We hear a lot about ballistic missiles, but Iran has been very active uh, in uh, the drone warfare front going back to its 2019 attack on Saudi oil facilities and uh, its continued use of drones to attack U.S. advisors and trainers in Iraq. Uh, and in late October, there was an Iranian uh, drone attack on the U.S. base in Syria. Uh, so how much of a threat do these drones uh, pose? I, yeah, I think both cruise missiles and UAVs don't get enough attention, once again, along with the broader missile question when you're talking about Iran. They're definitely a threat. I wouldn't say cruise missiles and drones are a nuclear threat right now, as, as the missiles, I think, are potentially will be and are certainly meant to be, are certainly meant to be. I mean, Iran has land attack cruise missiles. They've got uh, anti-ship cruise missiles. They have ground launch cruise missiles and um, submarine launch cruise missiles. There's like 10 different models and they keep they keep building them. So they they believe in these uh, systems. Once again, you know, there's prestige involved in it. There's a, the deterrence, the, the defense. Uh, Iran's views on using these sort of uh, systems uh, is informed by their experience in Iran-Iraq war back in the 1980s. And of course, they don't have an air force. So this is the way they can convey these threats, the way they can project power. They can also proliferate them. We haven't talked about that, but they've proliferated these capabilities as well, especially to the Houthis. And of course, they're in, they're in tight with the Syrians. So that's obviously another concern. Um, you know, there are some significant challenges in when we talk about nuclear, since this is about the nuclear nuclear negotiations and miniaturizing a, uh, a nuclear weapon to fit inside of a nose cone of a, a large missile, you know, but it, imagine trying to do it with a cruise missile uh, or a UAV, but it, it is possible. We've had nuclear-tipped cruise missiles. The Russians have a nu nuclear-tipped cruise missile. So this is something that the Iranians may be, may be thinking about. And what really keeps me up at night, Jim, is that how little we really know about what's going on in Iran. I mean, if you go back and look at the history of this, I mean, uh, I don't think we, you know, we had ideas that Iran might be involved. We were very, in the, you know, in the 90s, worried about Russian involvement with the Iranians and building the Boucher reactor. But I mean, we, there was other sources outside of the intelligence community that cued us uh, to the Iranian nuclear program. And how many times have we found new sites? And Fred mentioned these other sites where they've found, where they've found uh, traces of, of material. So what don't we know? That's what's really, really, really scary. And what we know already is scary enough. What we don't know is scary. So the Iranians may be working on this. And of course, as somebody looks at WMD, you know, these are these are uh, vehicles, these UAVs and these cruise missiles that can certainly be used for chemical or biological weapons as, as well. And they're difficult to detect. Uh, you know, a cruise missile, for instance, and a, and a drone have a very low radar cross section. Uh, they can fly low. They're maneuverable, means they can come from any sort of direction if there's a gap in your radar system. I mean, I wrote a paper about this on Iran's programs like probably a year or so ago, if, if people are interested in looking it up. It might be a little bit out of date, but I think it gives some good data on the importance of this of this program. I mean, they have a, have a land attack cruise missile, the SUMAR, which has a 2,000 kilometer range. That covers that covers the Middle East. I mean, it certainly covers, you know, uh, countries that we're, that, you know, we're concerned, that we're concerned about. Uh, the Goddard anti-ship cruise missile, which can 
Cover the Gulf has a range of 300 kilometers. So these are something we need to worry about from a conventional standpoint and maybe some point at some point in the future from an unconventional standpoint. So uh, and these, you know, we've been looking at developing capabilities under missile defense for dealing with ballistic missiles. And we made tremendous strides. But looking at cruise missiles and UAVs is another uh, you know, defense technology challenge that we're going to have to we're going to have to embrace, especially when we see Iran's uh, capabilities. And once again, the other thing I'm, I mentioned earlier is, is the proliferation. I mean, if they transfer these sort of capabilities um, to other non-state actors or even state actors, it extends Iran's influence beyond Iran's borders. Uh, you know, think about think about the, the war in Yemen and the Houthis. Right. Uh, you know, think about our, our ships and our servicemen operating in the, uh, you know, in the Middle East. Um, this is this is something that we definitely need to be we need to be concerned about. And it is going to be a priority of those. And, they, and interestingly, Jim, they take great pride in developing these systems because they say, look, we're in it, you know, for internal propaganda purposes and for international propaganda purposes. Is look what we've been able to develop. Um, you know, despite this international sanctions on us. And we, as we know, Iran is, is scouring the world uh, for, um, you know, for technology that they can use in these, uh, these systems, not just cruise missiles and UAVs, but missiles and nuclear systems. And they've, they've become experts of, of smuggling. And then I also worry about, I don't know if we'll get into this, but I'll, I'll stop here, but I, I hope we get a chance to maybe talk about their relationship with North Korea. Uh, which also could aid and accelerate any of these uh, any of these programs, not necessarily UAVs and cruise missiles, but certainly certainly missiles in their in their nuclear program. Okay, that's a, a very interesting point you bring up, uh, Peter. And I'd like to ask Fred. You've also worked on uh, North Korean uh, proliferation matters. I think when you were at the State Department, maybe before that at CIA, but. How do you assess uh, Iran's relationship with North Korea and what that means, not only for its nuclear program, but for ballistic missile program? This is an important question, and I, I want to reiterate that Peter is exactly right. We do not talk enough about Iran's missile program. It is a nuclear weapons delivery system. That is the purpose of it. And Iran's missile program is entirely based on assistance from North Korea. North Korea's is based on assistance from the Russians. Uh, the North Koreans perfected and changed the designs. They then sent the designs uh, uh, to Iran and they made their own changes to it. And we know there's been very close collaboration and funding from Iran to North Korea for North Korea to develop certain missile designs. There have been reports of Iranian nuclear scientists attending uh, underground nuclear tests in North Korea. We don't have any evidence I'm aware of that North Korea has shared its nuclear weapons technology or nuclear weapons designs with Iran. But it's pretty clear that A.Q. Khan, the father of the North Korean nuclear program, provided nuclear weapons information, not just to North Korea, but to Iran and to Libya, and probably provided Iran with a, a blueprint for a nuclear bomb. We know he did this for North Korea. It's a Chinese blueprint that Khan got from the Pakistani government. In all likelihood, he gave the same design, if not a, not a similar one, uh, to Iran. So I think there's a very close collaboration. We just don't know exactly how close this collaboration is between these two nations on the nuclear weapons effort. And Peter, would you like to add something to that? Yeah. 
I, I mean, they have, they have a very secretive relationship. And I, you know, I certainly hope that inside the government uh, that they have better information than we're seeing outside the government. Uh, I've tried to write on this a couple of times, and the information is very, very scarce. Although I did write a piece in the Daily Signal a few months ago talking where a U.S. government official uh, you know, said that long-range missile cooperation with, between Iran and North Korea uh, is, is, has con- uh, resumed. Uh, I think that was the word that they. I think that was the word that they used. Uh, and um, I, but I didn't know a lot about what was going on before, uh, and I don't know exactly where it stands now. But it was said. It was said publicly, so it was a tidbit that gave us an idea that they are that they are working together. Um, they supposedly have a scientific and technical cooperation agreement, but not much is out there. And I hope that our intelligence community and those of our friends and allies are able to gather information. But as we know, both Iran and North Korea are uh, hard targets, very, very difficult. Uh, And I often caution friends and colleagues about being critical of the intelligence community. Both Fred and I are veterans of that, and not just in in their self-defense, but understanding how difficult it is to work against hard targets. Um, They have tremendous uh, counterintelligence capabilities. They have strong intelligence services that protect their secrets well, um, and it's it's very difficult. So, I, but I'm hoping that inside the government, they know a lot more about what's going on. Because think about what a witch's brew that is. You know, uh, North Korea uh, is is very capable on missiles, right? Uh, North Korea has you know has, has some space capability. These are things that Iran that Iran wants. I mean, North Korea today is. Uh, has done some ejection tests of, uh, at least ejection tests of uh, missiles, uh, submarine launch ballistic missiles. Uh, Iran it feels very strongly about its submarine force as well, and has put some cruise missiles on these, on these boats uh, for it to protect its interests and project its interests in the in the in the Persian Gulf, which obviously puts American partners and allied naval forces in harm's way. So I really worry about that there is this sort of cooperation going on uh, that would accelerate Iran's programs. Um, And of course, you know, Iran may be willing to pay for this. And of course, North Korea is always looking for hard currency, uh, things to get, perhaps, you know, other things, energy supplies. So I I would think that there is. And of course, another thing, I think that North Korea uh, which is very capable in terms of their ballistic missiles, would also like to get their hands on uh, you know, Iranian technology regarding cruise missiles uh, and UAVs uh, for its interests. So there's this sort of, you know, just a perfect sinister relationship that's possible there that I think we really need to worry about and try to uh, counteract if we can in terms of counterproliferation capabilities. And Fred knows a lot about this from his, his time in in government, just in the Bush administration, I'm sure, when his work with John Bolton on the proliferation security initiative. So it's just really a, not a good mix. Uh, you know, Iranian and nu- North Korean missiles, uh, nuclear weapon desires. Uh, obviously, North Korea is a nuclear weapon, has nuclear weapons, even space operations. Once again, you know, there's this this very close tie. In fact, the uh, the um, the military technology control regime, you know, basically puts uh, space launch vehicles and ICBMs technology in the same category because they're similar. Uh, you know, the, the idea that Iran, which has a mix of both liquid propelled and solid fuel propelled uh, rocket motors, missile motors uh, for its for its systems, um, you know, it is wants to move in, in a direction towards solid fuel. And so does and so does North Korea. So there's a lot of 
bad possibilities of bad possibilities there. I mean, the, the Shahab missile, right? We have three variants of that is originally a no dog. Um, you know, the, the, there's worries that uh, Ron may have gotten uh, hold of the uh, the Musudan uh, medium range ballistic missile, a North Korean missile, which is based on a Russian uh, capability. And then there's the Hwasong 15. I mean, there's a lot of things these two sides can, uh, can trade. And I'm I may be a little out of date on this, but I remember there were times that there was flights that uh, people were watching that traveled over China directly to Iran between North Korea and Iran. Um, I don't know where that stands. That stands today. It's probably something I should look back into. But there, there were things in the open press about that a long time ago, uh, and the Chinese were turning, I think, a blind eye to that sort of proliferation uh, going on. And who knows what were on those what were on those aircraft? Just as some of the anecdotes we've heard from Fred about, you know, attending each other's um, tests of some weapon systems. But yeah, it's 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 really a, a, a terrible axis uh, that we need to that we might need to deal with. And they certainly can help each other. And they're both enemies of the United States. Uh, and I can see them wanting to work together to uh, make things difficult for the United States and its friends and allies. Okay, I'd like to go to some of the questions from the audience. Uh, and the first question would be, what is the current role and position being taken by France, Germany, and Britain in these talks? And it's off, off, sometimes forgotten that this is a multilateral pact, and uh, Iran knows that well. Uh, before The day before the talks officially started, Iran closeted it. Uh, Iranian negotiators met with Russian and Chinese negotiators, uh, essentially who are acting as Iran's lawyers. So it's it's mm. uh, looking to its allies. Uh, and I'd like to ask Fred, is, well, what's the current role and position of, of our allies in this these talks? Well, when Joe Biden became president, uh, our European allies welcomed him back to the club. This was not a good thing. We don't want to be part of this European club, which wants to go easy on Iran and push climate agreements that hurt our workers and other multilateral concerns. But what's interesting recently, Jim, is that the Europeans feel they've been pushed too far by Iran. The Wall Street Journal says today that the Europeans said that if Iran starts enriching the weapons grade, that's 90 percent, the talks are done. And the fact that the Europeans apparently want to stop the talks early this week, I think, is a sign that as eager as they are to reverse President Trump's withdrawal of the U.S. from the agreement, they're fed up with Iran's behavior. And I think that's good news for international security. I hope they will join us in imposing uh, a new maximum pressure campaign against Iran. Hey, Jim, I think it's I think it's also important. Uh, Fred, I, I agree with Fred. I think it's also important to understand that the uh, we can't expect help from the Chinese or the Russians <laughs> on this issue. Uh, you know, they're you know, the Chinese are very opportunistic in their foreign policy. Any time that things go bad with the West in Iran, China will take advantage of it. Uh, the Russians have interests in Iran that are different than ours, and of course, our relationships with both of those countries and great power competition today are very, very difficult. Um, so it's. The, the negotiations are fraught with uh, are fraught with difficulties. Um, and like I said, I don't expect to get a lot of support, even though nonproliferation is in the interests of China and Russia. I don't expect to get a lot of support since it will cause the United States to uh, potentially have to um, 
deal with challenging issues in the Middle East involving Iran, uh, which will stretch our resources. Um, certainly when there's other matters, you know, we're worried about Russia and Ukraine today. Think about that, Europe, and of course, uh, China in, the, in, um, in Asia. Uh, and our, our forces, which is, comes down to the fact that we need to recapitalize our military capabilities um, after many, many years of, of tremendous pressure, pressure on them. Uh, we have to uh, reinvigorate our nuclear deterrence, uh, continue with missile defense and other things. But I'm saying I think that they don't mind Russia and China would not mind the United States being distracted, strategically distracted uh, by an Iran problem so that they can do what they want to do in their uh, in their in their regions or sphere of influences. Okay, I have a related question from the audience. Uh, do your speakers credit the possibility that the Biden administration has to exhaust diplomatic options, including trying to restart the JCPOA, in order to begin building the international coalition of the Europeans, Russia, and China against Iran's nuclear program? Uh, do you want to take that first, Peter? Can you, I, I'm sorry you warbled it, Jim. Could you read that again? I'm sorry. I apologize. But uh, we had a little bit of a transmission thing, and I don't want to miss anything important. Okay. Uh, do you uh, credit the possibility that the Biden administration must first exhaust diplomatic options, including trying to restart the JCPOA, in order to begin building the international coalition of Europeans, Russians, and Chinese against Iran's yeah. nuclear program? The same thing that yeah, I, I, was going on yeah. back in 2015. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, diplomacy is the place to start. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, we have to test Iran's diplomatic intentions, their strategic intentions, and that's what's going on, especially under this new regime. Although, as we know, the Ayatollah makes the calls here, but, you know, we do have a new president who's not necessarily, Iranian residents are not usually that critical, I think, in decision-making in um in national security matters. I think it's made by a small group of people surrounding the, and, and the Ayatollah. Um, so, but I think, yeah, you do have to test their diplomatic intentions. That will be, that will be critical. Um, and I think that's the place, the place to start. And if negotiations fail, then they, they, they may fail. I, you know, my view is right now is that a, uh, you know, a bad deal is worse than no deal. Um, you know, if we go back to the situation with the JCPOA and its uh, significant flaws that, we, that Fred and I and you have talked about throughout this throughout this program, they're all well known. I, I don't think we've we've accomplished anything. You know, the sunset provision. I mean, Iran has to swear off nuclear weapons in perpetuity, not just uh, for a few years. They have to swear off fissile fissile material production. Um, you know, forever. Um, they can. There's there's places they can get fissile material if they actually are pursuing nuclear power. Um, you know, it, so there, there are ways of doing this, but I think uh, we do need to start with diplomacy and that gives us an opportunity uh, to show our good intentions, um, share the concerns of many, many others. I mean, we're representing a lot of countries. Nobody wants to see this proliferation uh, issue explode, uh, you know, using <laughs> a, an important term there, right? Uh, you know, this Iran becoming a nuclear weapon state is not good for regional stability, our international stability. It's not just the United States, and that's uh, that is interested in this, or Israel. Uh, this affects, you know, Saudi Arabia. It affects the Arab states in, in the Middle East. There's proliferation concerns. Uh, once again, imagine if Iran were to transfer something to Syria uh, or some other, you know, even a 
you know, a, a non-state actor. I mean, that's really, really frightening. Um, so, I mean, this is just not in the interest of the United States. Uh, this non-proliferation effort is in the interest of the of the global community. Um, and so that's that's something I think people need to understand. But if you start with diplomacy and you show that it has failed, I think that gives you a certainly license and right to take a more difficult, um, undertake more difficult um, uh, sanctions or measures against the, the Iranian regime. Jim, can I respond real briefly, 30 seconds? I sure. agree with all that, but we have to negotiate from strength, and Biden hasn't done that. He's been desperate to rejoin this nuclear deal. He hasn't cared how Iran behaves. If we negotiate from weakness, the nuclear deal the nuclear deal is going to get worse, and Iran is going to get nuclear weapons anyway. And that's why elections have consequences. When you elect an, an incapable president who, who is incapable of being commander-in-chief, who does not understand the threats facing this country, it is enormously threatening to our national security. Okay. Uh, let me just take one more from the audience uh, before we wrap things up. Uh, let's see. There was a... Juicy one trying to get to. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Okay, here it is. Uh, what do you predict would happen if Israel decides it can't wait anymore and mounts an attack on, say, Isfahan? Are the Iranian people at a point where they, that would set off a general uh, uh, would, would set off a backlash against the regime, or would they be more likely to rally to the flag? I think an attack like that would set off a, a, a very devastating war, and I don't believe the Israelis will use military action until they absolutely have to. Maybe when they think Iran is about to do conduct an underground nuclear test, instead, I think Iran is going. Uh, is, Israel is going to continue its very effective sabotage efforts to destroy Iranian nuclear sites and to assassinate uh, Iranian nuclear scientists. Uh, we've saw we've seen a bit of that this year and last year, and I think it's going to be stepped up. You know, Jim, those are the tough questions that policymakers have to deal with. <laughs> And when I think about these things, because they are really, really hard questions, and I would, you know, it's important for people to understand how difficult it is to be a policymaker uh, and have to try to predict the future. Uh, and I'm, I'm always reminded, I think it was Neil Bors who said that uh, prediction is hard, especially about the future. So <laughs> on that note, I think, uh, you know, that's, that's a very, very difficult question, but an important question that policymakers, whether in Israel, the United States or elsewhere, would have, are, you know, wrestling with, uh, wrestling with today. Okay, and I'd like to just wrap it up with the $64 million question. Uh, if you were advising, you can split it up $32 million each. Uh, if you were advising <laughs> President Biden, what should be U.S. policy at the Vienna talks and on the broader nuclear issue? Fred, do you want to go first? Uh, Mr. President, walk out of the talks, resume President Trump's maximum pressure campaign. The talks are a fraud. Stop trying to revive this terrible deal. Iran is not ready to talk or negotiate in good faith. Let's work with our allies. Strong sanctions, diplomatic isolation. 
Yeah, I, I think um, I, I agree with that. Um, I think a bad deal, as I said before, is um, is worse than no deal. Um, and we don't want to buy into, uh, you know, program. I don't even like the longer and stronger idea. I, you know, I kind of thought that was a, a cute bumper sticker, but I think we were really need to think about is like, um, it's stronger and, um, forever not, you know, or stronger and never, uh, you know, because we cannot allow Iran to develop its, its nuclear capabilities because they cannot, cannot be trusted. The other thing I worry about, Jim, is that you're talking about sanctions. Uh, anytime you put uh, money in Iran's pocket, uh, it's going to go to bad purposes. You know, the money under the JCPOA, instead of going to uh, the folks of Iran, uh, building human infrastructure or infrastructure or human capital or to the benefit of the people of Iran, went to a military buildup, uh, which we're seeing with things like the UAVs and, and the cruise missiles uh, and things, uh, things along that line. And we haven't said it enough, but Iran is the most active state sponsor of terrorism in the world today, right? And they sponsor other regimes that are state sponsors, such as such as Syria. And look what they're doing. Look at what they're doing in Yemen. I mean, this is this is a, a malevolent regime, uh, and we have to be very careful about that. But we need to address those issues that you know Fred and I and you have, have you know talked about. You know, the sunset provisions, the ballistic missiles, uranium enrichment, uh, verifications, full transparency. Uh, and uh, we should not be afraid to walk away from the talks and show that Iran that, that we're serious and we're going to we're going to be tough. OK, and with that, I'd like to uh, bring this uh, panel to a close. I'd like to thank our speakers for some very illuminating points. And also, I'd like to thank the audience for some pretty tough questions. Uh, and I wish I could have got to them uh, uh, easier. But this uh this technology is is uh, frustrating to a Luddite like me, but thank you, everyone, and uh, good afternoon from the Heritage Foundation. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Thanks, Fred. Good to be here.